Hey everybody, it's Axel and Andy. We're here with Hank Nzinga, uh, Inspector, Unit Commander of Homicide Toronto Police Service on 24 Shades of Blue. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Thanks well, for joining us. If, if everybody who's listening and everybody's watching on video, I'm looking dead into his eyes and <laughs> I can see that he could interview me very well. You know, you mentioned to us you know, earlier that you don't like the word um, interrogation. Could you right. like talk more about that? Uh, I... I really think it's a uh, American TV type term, um, and we we interview people, and rarely will it turn into that prototypical interrogation uh, type scenario. Um, so I, I really prefer the the term interview, well, whether it be a, a witness, a victim, or an accused that we're talking to. Do you do you ever just you know watch any Netflix shows and say I could solve this on my own? <laughs> <laughs> I watch um, I watch I, I I don't watch too much TV um, and and Netflix. I'm usually at the mercy of my daughter or my wife as to what's on, uh, but I do like uh, Forty Eight Hours. Okay, uh, nice. And once in a while, I'll be watching that and think, oh, you've got to do this <laughs> or you've got to do do that, right? But uh, usually they. They show the solved cases on yeah. those shows, right? So it tends to flow quite nicely. Oh, so, so most of them are realistic then, would you say? Are, are, are I would say for, show? Well, 48 hours is obviously very realistic. Uh, it's, a, it's a different world south of the border as yeah. to what they can do and, and what they can't do as opposed to what we can do up here. Uh, but a lot of it uh, is very good, so... So very close. It's very much on point for the most part. Do they use did they use uh, homicide detectives to bounce ideas off of? Do you think, or is that I'm sure they're winging it? Uh, well, Forty Eight Hours actually follows live homicide investigations. Okay, um, and I'm sure there's, but it's it's condensed into forty what forty four minutes. Yeah, right? yeah. A, a, which a murder is investigation. <laughs> And yeah. which, which is never the case. And the whole premise of the show is if you don't have that lead within 48 hours, it reduces your probability of solving that murder. Um, so like I said, they do rarely will they show an unsolved case on there. Um, yeah. But sometimes they do show cases uh, that have carried on for months and they do condense that into 44 minutes. There's a whole show about unsolved unsolved mysteries and uh, you know that's what I just pictured when I, when I heard about you know Hank I'm like oh, okay is this guy just in there going I, can, I know exactly what's gonna happen <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I have to ask this I guess you know I'm a big horror movie guy do, do you watch horror movies or do you do you kind of stay away from those because you've or probably you seen some real life horror <laughs> movies I imagine what, what's your take on horror flicks uh, is that a sheer morbid curiosity well it's a it, it's a fascinating time of year to ask that question right, right. because all the networks are the showing uh, the horror movies now, and yeah. I, I will confess, I've watched, um, I think, one of the Halloween shows. Mike uh, Myers, yeah. Mike Myers. Uh, the original Friday the 13th was on, mm-hmm. uh, and I watched that. But it's not so much for the entertainment. It's, it's more nostalgic for me because those are uh, 1980s movies, right? And I remember when they first came with, out right? and, and grew up with those. So, um but other than that, like I said, uh, if I'm watching any TV, it's usually some of those A&E shows like 48 Hours um, and whatever my wife or daughter wants to watch on Netflix. <laughs> forced, forced TV watch. Your good father and husband. I mean, especially with things that are, you know, very press worthy. One of the things we yeah. want to talk about was, you know, the MacArthur investigation and, you know, that's yeah. huge all over Toronto. Um, 
you know, how was leading Canada all over Canada? Yeah, you know, I was scared to go, you know, planting and go pick up something. You know, what? Tell us about that experience for you, and you know how you know the whole Toronto Police handled that as well. Yeah, that's one of those cases where there's so much going on that the public's not aware of. Uh, a lot of work being done by a lot of investigators from the Toronto Police Service um, over years uh, since that first missing person in 2010 and really coming to fruition in 2017, uh, in the summer of 2017. And investigatively, I I played a very small role in that investigation, right? There were a lot of people working on it. and as it evolved through the summer and, and fall of 2017, um, I was being uh, updated on what was going on and doing a little bit of, of the steering. Uh, but the day that the key piece of evidence was found wasn't until January of 2018. Uh, and on that day, it became a, a, a real full-time, uh, around-the-clock 24-7 job for not just myself, but a lot of the investigators on the team. And that carried on well into the midsummer of 2018. <clears throat> Sorry, 2018. Until we found the, the final set of remains and, and could account for all eight of those victims. Uh, so 2018 really was a, a whirlwind. And I had to put a lot of other things aside for the first six, seven months of that. And ultimately my main role was being that, that media liaison uh, for that case, which I think the, the city really needed that constant updating and that constant information. Absolutely, and I think, you know, you touch upon it, a lot of the public is missing out on specific aspects. You know, could you go deeper into what we're not seeing or what is the work actually being done, you know, to, to help solve these cases that you know, the general public doesn't know about. You know, what are those things so we can help you know, empathize with what's going on? Well, I, I can, you know, I don't want to jump from case to case, but if you look at the recent uh, cold case resolution of the Christine Jessup yes. investigation, and there have been some media outlets over the years that have really made a, a franchise of being critical of nothing being done on that investigation. But in the meantime, in the background, there is so much, so much being, work done. being done. Time. And the amount of work that those investigators put into that case over the years is, is just phenomenal. And then at the end of the day, we have this resolution. And some people are surprised. They're like, wow, you know, I, I, we didn't realize how much work you guys actually were putting into that. And we can't always talk about it. We can't compromise some of those investigations. I like to be as open as I possibly can um, and, and let people know what we're doing. Does that ever frustrate you, you know, in terms of, um, you know, people not understanding the type of work? Like, I mean, it frustrates me whenever I'm on set and film and, you know, they don't know that there's maybe 10 people for one specific thing. And, you know, you have to explain that. And, you know, I get frustrated, but I know it's part of the job because it's kind of the magic that happens is, you know, making a movie or making a video versus the magic of solving a murder, you know, uh, and, and that. So. And there's no less work going on in the background of a murder investigation yeah. than there is going on. If you look around this room right here, right now, yeah. uh, the amount of assets it takes and logistics to have a simple recorded conversation. 
Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And do you find one of the things that um, I would imagine is very difficult is when you when you had mentioned that um, obviously when things cool off in a, in a murder case, you know, obviously they're not as the, the engine's not revving as hard necessarily as it is if there's a, a hot lead or if there's there's a timing issue. Right. Would you say that it's difficult for how hard is it to keep your emotions in check when you did find that first piece of evidence in 2018? I think you had said um, when you you found that. And, and now that case has picked up some speed again. How do you keep your emotions in check by not getting too high, not getting too low and, and staying at an even keel? Mm-hmm. Does that play a role? And I, I think it does. And I think it, it really takes many years of experience in a venue like the Homicide Squad where yeah. you've, you've had that case. And it might be the simplest of cases that you were the first one to respond to the call for that and you've gone and done the investigation and you've resolved the case, arrested somebody, and then seen it through the court processes, which is two thirds of the work yeah. uh, after the arrest that needs to take yeah. place. Someone right? could be sitting even even um, before it goes to trial. I mean, you have people sitting in, in st- still in, in prison for, you know, two, right. two years, three years before that even goes to trial. So right. there's, there's a lot of work that has to go on in between yeah. But I imagine it is a bit of a roller coaster at certain times when there's a trial or a pre-trial and there's a lot of up and down, a lot of emotional. There's pre-trials. There's, there's yeah. almost always a preliminary inquiry, which yeah. is like a mini trial. Um, and there's a lot of work for a good two-year period. They're trying to shrink that, that time uh, between arrest and between going to trials as best as they can. Uh, but that is the bulk of the work after after the fact after that uh, after that yeah. arrest, and then you, you know, team up with uh, with some dedicated crown attorneys um, to present the best case you can in court, and and that's an awful lot of work too. Yeah, and you might see some coverage at trial in the media. Uh, rarely will they mention the investigators yeah. uh, kind of take a back in the background and they, you kind of, you do kind of take a back seat, but uh, that is a absolutely a tremendous amount of work. So until you've been through that process mm-hmm. and you can sit down in a case like the MacArthur case and visualize, here's what's going to be happening over the next two, three years. And here's yeah. what I have to make sure I account for and I'm responsible for. Um, and, and that's really what you're thinking of when that day comes, when that evidence comes forward, right? Yeah. So the MacArthur case is, is a great example when you, where you find this photograph of somebody on a computer who appears to be deceased, yeah. mm. but you still don't have a body. And yeah. so our concern right there is how, how do we prove that this person is deceased in this photograph? Sure looks deceased to me. But yeah. can I get a pathologist to look at this photograph and say this person's deceased? Yeah. Maybe. Prove uh, it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, you, you're always considering that at every stage in your investigation. And that's something that Mark Saunders was phenomenal at, too. Uh, the minute he picked up that phone for that murder call, he was already thinking ahead to the Crown's closing argument. Ten steps wow. ahead. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you need to in yeah. order to, you know, to be effective at that to job. To get the end result you want and also to get... Because not only do you guys have to, you know, have the information and prove it out a little bit, um, but you also then have to go and get warrants. You have to go and get, um, you know, to, to gain access to one's home and, and to, to gain valuables from people to, to kind of right. work through. So there's a lot of other things outside of that that go along to it. And then also, how much does this play a role? So not only do you have to do the work for two, three years, but then you also have to deal with the 
cunning defense teams, right? <laughs> and I know you know this because those guys are coming to, they're trying to find holes in, in the work that you've done. And because it's such a long period of time since the thing started, is there, uh, how, how, how hard is it to, to fill those holes in and be prepared for that cross-examination from, from them? There's no such thing as a, a perfect investigation where you're going to be able to plug up all those holes yeah. and, and a good defense lawyer really will weave their They'll way work, work their way in, right? in and around yeah. whatever you have because remember, they've got complete disclosure of absolutely everything that you have yeah. and they'll try to punch holes in it and poke holes in it, right? And um, hopefully you have a strong enough case where you can still convict... Uh, yeah still convict the accused well, how does that feel you know once once it does go through and you know things are said and done and you've finally closed you know how does that feel for you and your team you know inside and amount of work you've done over the years at what point like? in time i that the when the when the jury comes back with yeah. the guilty comes or back not, and not you know, guilty yeah uh it's it, it's very surreal because um you expect a very happy feeling yeah. or a, a feeling of ecstasy uh, when that comes back. And it's not like that. It's um, you're usually dead tired. <laughs> You've been waiting for that jury for four or five yeah. days mm. uh, for 12 hours a day. Yeah. And you're sitting in the courtroom and there's no high fives and there's no clapping and uh, there's no applause. It's no. just guilty, not guilty. Um, Oh, okay, that's it. We're it done. is what it is. On to the next one, right? And the and next, the next thing I wanted to bring up, um, you had already touched on it earlier, was Christine Jessup. Um, I am actually from Mount Albert, Ontario, okay. in East Quillenberry, where Queensville is also within East Quillenberry. And uh, I was four years old at the time uh, when she had passed, and I remember Guy Paul Moran, her neighbor. It was all over the place, but especially in the community of East Quillenberry that had twenty thousand yeah. people. Um, you know. And then now hearing that the case was solved so many years later, give us a little background about, you know, what had happened back in 84 and, and what has transpired um, now recently in that case. Well, um, I might be dating myself a little bit. I'm, I I'm, just I'm did. Not so. I'm not quite, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not as young as you, but I'm not quite old enough. I mean, in 1984, I was, uh, I would have been 17 years old. Listening to Bruce um, Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> came on the scene Possibly. at that time. We'll touch on that <laughs> after. Continue. 1984, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> in all 1985 Exhibition Stadium. A born in the USA tour, but uh, I didn't make the 1984 shows. Um, so in 1984, you know, I, I can well imagine uh, what was happening in 1984 with a, a missing girl uh, out of York region, yeah. a missing nine-year-old girl, and the search and for her. Uh, yeah. not knowing what had happened, uh, carry on for, for quite some time. And then her rem remains being found in Durham region. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you've got that. And, and we still see it today. It's not a battle, but it's okay. Now you have two police services who are going right. to be responsible yeah. for this investigation. Um, and I think we're much better at it today. Uh, than we would have been back then. And you're looking at two relatively small jurisdictions where they might not have that experience 
yeah. uh, in homicide, of, right? of, of, of dealing with a lot of murders, yeah. right? Over my uh, 15 years in homicide, where I've dealt with about 80 murders. Wow. Um, and That's a good point, yeah. Up there, they might be dealing with, you know, two or three a year at that point in time, right? They're a little busier now than they were back then. Uh, but I can imagine that was just a massive, massive investigation. And that would have been pre-Paul Bernardo as well. And we saw a review of the Paul Bernardo case uh, yeah. years later where they really took the handshaking of the different police services and, and committed it to a software platform with a little tiny bit of artificial intelligence back in those days. And that's grown and expanded as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be critical or, or yeah. second guess anything that was done in 1984 because yeah. I'm sure uh, a dedicated group of investigators investigating the murder of a nine-year-old child and child murders are the absolute toughest uh, murders to deal with investigatively to begin yeah. with. How come? Um, they're very emotional, wow. right? Absolutely. Uh, extremely emotional. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's the parents or the guardians uh, involved in it. So it's a, it's a matter of establishing uh, exclusive opportunity and really relying a lot on medical evidence. Uh, but in a case like that, uh, that's, that's a tough case. Yeah. And to be critical of guys who were working that case back in 1984, um, when really there was probably nothing more they wanted in their life to do than solve that case. Yeah. And they didn't have right? the resource, not even close to the amount of resources right. that we have today, right? Yeah. So um, I, I'm glad at the end of the day, uh, you know, we were able to do an awful lot of work to to get that successful outcome and there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered and then the guys are working around the clock on it still yeah. uh, to dig back into that case and the and person that was uh, that they had said was the guilty party has been deceased for some time I, I he I died in 2015 um and you know, there's a, there's a real fine line, and and here's a good example. Going getting back to your earlier question, where you where you call him the uh, the guilty party? Yeah, uh, he, he's really he's never been found guilty in a court of law. So I guess right? yeah. So uh, would we have had grounds to arrest him uh, at, at this point in time? Yes, we're saying we would have had those grounds, right? Okay. So and and that's as far as I'll go with that. Yeah, right? I mean, it sounds like you're very busy you know as of right now you know what is it like to lead the largest you know investigative unit for homicide in, in canada as well as you know in a covid environment how is that how are you dealing with that all well, covid's a, a very interesting uh hurdle in, yeah. in in how we conduct day-to-day -day business right we can't uh we can't stop doing what we do but we have to uh make certain um changes in how we do business, whether we rely on Zoom or other platforms to conduct interviews. Obviously, everyone's wearing masks and, and maintaining that social distancing. Sure. Um, I'm assuming that might possibly be less effective, you know, being in the room, like 
could I see how you interview you would interview Andy right now if he was a perp? <laughs> Please don't. Hey. Please don't. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, and take the fifth, Andy. Yeah, I'll yeah, just take the fifth. So, Call my uh, lawyer. Use the American uh, version. But what, what we're seeing right now, uh, interestingly enough, and uh, is trying to deal with these these cases in court. Right. And the are they all Zoom right of, now or are they in well, person? Some, there's some that uh, venues that are in person. There's some venues where they're using a, a courtroom adjacent to the main courtroom and uh, they're Zooming in. Uh, there's some uh, courtrooms where they're just using another office in the building and putting witnesses in there. Uh, but to walk into a courtroom in, in 2020 and seeing these plexiglass walls around the judges yeah, and, yeah. and the lawyers. Uh, so strange. It, it, it's yeah. very strange. And I think some lawyers have even commented, and I agree, well, this is probably something we should have been doing 10 or 15 years ago, right? Instead of, uh, you know, with having the court system, as one lawyer said, uh, I remember in a TV interview, has been stuck in the 1970s, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, why are we still doing things this way? Uh, yeah. Why are we bringing people in literally from anywhere in the world and uh, transporting them here and putting them up in a hotel. And when it's your time to testify, then we'll bring you down to the courthouse. And, and that's it when we can simply put them in front of a computer and uh, you go. have them provide their evidence that way. Right. So do you, do you interesting find, times. Do you yeah. find um So I know um, through speaking with some other um, officers who are friends of mine that um, during COVID domestic cases have risen, um, do you find that this is such a tough time playing on people's mental health? Do you find that homicides has increased uh, or even maybe due to shortage uh, at the border for, for drugs? Do you, do you feel that COVID has played any role in an increase or decrease of, of homicides? It's an interesting question because we, we've had this discussion and you see in the, in the newspapers, in the media, that homicide rates have been going up in ju- different yeah. jurisdictions and in, in particular in regards to domestics and, and mental health issues. Yeah. And we haven't really seen, seen it in Toronto. Oh, okay. Um, we've had some, uh, some pretty awful, uh, mental health slash domestic related homicides this year. Okay. But I don't believe it's anything higher than what we would normally have. So fairly standard year to year then pretty standard. And you do see a lot of strain on, on a lot of people because of COVID, but, uh, I, I don't see it affecting the homicide rate. Well, what's your Mm -hmm. prediction for the winter? I think, you know, everybody's saying that once everything is closed yeah, and that things might, are cold. Yeah, I think, well, I, you, know, you know, my mom works at the hospital and she's telling me, I'm already seeing all the mental health cases down yeah. in Sinai are, you know, skyrocketing. And we can only imagine what yeah. winter's going to look like. Um, you, you know, from your professional opinion, do you think things could happen more in the winter as people are more closed in and, you know, people are locked in? It's hard to say. I mean, Trump has promised a vaccine, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's in the mail. Uh, yeah, so uh, maybe it'll depend on the American election. I, I, I yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I really think um, uh, Toronto's such a great city, and we we tend to be uh, pretty good when it comes to you know put a mask on and, so and people are put on, the, on the masks, and yeah. I think you know. Uh, we're getting some really good uh, information updates multiple times a day uh, as to best practices. 
and uh, some good leadership and some good guidance. And uh, hopefully, you know, we were all panicking back in March uh, yeah. with and really terrible situation in the province but not nearly as bad as we've seen in other countries and uh, uh, even just south of the border yeah. of us I, th I think we've done pretty good so far and hopefully over the course of this winter we we keep that course absolutely now for the um just out of sheer curiosity for the interviews that wouldn't be zoom i would imagine that would be a little bit more well you'd want that would that make a difference in an interview the personal uh, you know, setting, would it be more beneficial to be in front of that person to watch body language and gestures? It would be, tone? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you change your background yeah. to make it seem more mysterious? <laughs> <laughs> I would yeah, think. I don't think there'd be any cave or space background. Uh, just like yeah. five of your faces looking right at the perp, you know, you know more, I, more intense. I only just figured out how to change my background <laughs> yeah, uh, me recently. Too. So we, uh, we would do one as a joke where I would have me walking and then it would be myself walking and peeking in to, to my face and people would be like, what's going on? Now, you know, I'm glad we're laughing. And I think that's one thing I want to talk about is, you know, how do you, I mean, you've seen so many yeah. things from, you know, I mean, I couldn't even imagine things we couldn't even think of. How do you take that home? You know, you have a wife and kid, you know, what's that look like on how you de-stress, um, or how, what's your process on how you either leave it at home or do you take it with you? How does that work? Um, I think, and generally speaking, you, you do need that strong home support system. You know, I was very fortunate that my, my wife stayed at home after my daughter was born. Uh, so I didn't have to worry that much about scheduling and whatnot. Um, and after 15 years working these murders, um, I, I, I don't think it rolls off my back by, by any stretch. Um, I'm sure I'm deeply damaged, quite frankly, uh, as Megan <laughs> you will attest to. Just from the tech industry. <laughs> if anybody's listening and you, you won't see his face right now, he can give a pretty straight face. And as he says he's damaged, it just makes me laugh even further. I just want people to know that. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but you do absolutely have to, A, have that, that strong support network behind you. Um, we've got also a very good organization here when it comes to, to mental health or we're, we're getting better and yeah. better as time goes on and you need to have those outlets, um, and, and keep yourself busy away from work and, and no one shut it off. That's another right? important thing I think to add here is, or ask is, you know, what do you do to, cause I think a big part of maintaining mental health, whether it's exercise, whether it's, you know, watching 48 hours or Halloween or whatever it might be. <laughs> what are some things that you do um, to kind of, you know, make sure that you are switching off properly and you've allotted a certain amount of time? Do you have a, a calendar or a schedule in terms of shutting off? Um, or do you just feel that you need to shut off? And then what kind of activities do you, do you typically do? I think uh, your, your days off um, really should be your days off. I'm in a bit of a yeah. different situation now uh, as the inspector where I, I can't shut that phone off. Uh, but I, when I was the detective sergeant running one of the investigative teams, um, if, if one of my guys called me while they were on vacation <laughs> and started yeah. talking work, I'd say, you're on vacation. Yeah. Turn your phone off, right? Get uh, lost. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and don't watch the news. And turn yeah. it back on uh, on Sunday night before you're going to come back in on, on Monday morning. 
Uh, but you do have to have those outlets. And uh, I, I'm fortunate I've always had some sort of uh, physical activity to, to fall back on, right? I played a lot of basketball when I was younger and then the knees gave out and I switched to Well, cycling. the height gave it away. I didn't think you were, uh, <laughs> no, no, I I like think you you were still, a jockey. I feel like you could still cross me over one. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> it's, I, I, and, I, and I love doing it and I would, yeah, I would get out three or four times a week and uh, just, just hit the hard court. And um, in my mid-30s, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, I picked up a basketball a few times with my daughter as she was growing up. Uh, and I even run into some of my old basketball buddies and they're like, oh, come on out. We're all, we're all in our 50s, right? We're a little slower, a little older. I'm like, no, I've, I've had three knee surgeries. I'm not going oh, to yeah. put any more pounding on that right or re-injure it so I, I find uh road bike cycling uh nice. is is my thing now and uh, i get out pretty much every day uh, and just get on the bike for an hour so awesome yeah awesome. 100k and back do a century run. Uh, <laughs> i've done a couple of metric centuries i've never done a uh an imperial century uh, which would be 160k wow um it's a lot of. I can play walking five k. Yeah, that's a lot of pedaling. But I'll I'll do thirty ish every every morning, and on the weekend maybe go for seventy or eighty. You're a big right? dude too, so, so that's why you know. I'm a slow so, yeah, and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a slow cyclist. It takes me a lot longer to do that than most people. What about the peloton? I know that um, Deputy uh, Shauna Coxon has mm -hmm. a peloton that she's been raving about. Um, yeah. Have you looked into the uh, peloton? <laughs> we should almost get a, a paid ad for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, <laughs> Deputy Coxon had one. Chief Saunders had one, yeah. uh, and I think he still does. And. Um, Watch Halloween on there while you're biking. You know? yeah. <laughs> Get a run away from Mike Myers if you had to. Right now, my bike is in my office. It's on a smart trainer, and I use a program called Zwift ah, okay. uh, for winter training. So I'm still on there every morning at 6 a.m. Uh, doing 45 minutes to an hour of riding. So routine is that. a big... So it's very much like the Peloton. Okay, right. and you find routine. So basically in all of these, in the, the cycling and just routine, you're probably a beast of routine just because of your job. But do you find in terms of setting these activities out and, and just kind of being on a consistent routine is important? Or do you like to switch it up a little bit so it's not so mundane? No, routine makes it uh, more achievable, I think. Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, th this is the first year where I've actually set the bike up here at work for the winter. Whereas before I would set it up at home mm. and think, okay, I'm going to hop on the bike at four o'clock in the afternoon when I get home. No, it <laughs> never, happens. never happens. Yeah. Right. So if you set that time slot and I, I think that's very important for, especially for, um, for forms of exercise, set that time slot, stay committed to it. And even mornings like this morning where, uh, my sleep was interrupted a couple of times last night. Uh, and I was dead tired when I got in here and I thought, Oh, it's six o'clock. I'm still going to go on that. <laughs> then bike it's interview and, time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you had so many, so many years of experience here, you know, and, and now you kind of know the groove, you know, to, to take that time for your mental health break. Do you think a lot of the, you know, the younger people in the forest who are just getting in there and just want to drive it home and, you know, work all hours of the night, do you think they handle it as well? Or, uh, do you give them ever advice to say, you know, Hey, you know, like you said to uh, one of your colleagues, you know, get off the phone, you know, to your vacation. R regularly. Yeah. Uh, and the, the exercise is a, a great example of that where even in the homicide squad, we have guys who 
come into the office and it's taken them years and they've wanted to be there for so long and yes they finally get in and and their work ethic is through the roof yeah and they don't set that time aside Burnout rate they would burn probably, out. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it tires you out. So you really have to promote the healthy eating and the wellness and, and, and the exercise Absolutely. with these guys, right? So well, That's good you take care of your team. I think that's the main thing. And, yeah. and, I try and, to. Well, that's <laughs> and I try too. to be a positive influence, right? They come in and, uh, you know, if they're in at quarter to seven and they hear that buzzing sound from the boss's office because yeah. he's, he's on his bike. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've had numerous officers come and go from the office and by the time they leave they're on a road bike yeah mm-hmm. right because they've picked it up while they're there well I'm, I'm sure you know everything you know all the officers are affected very differently when it comes to you know dealing with homicide cases now you know the idea of mortality how's that changed since you started in law enforcement and you know where you are now in terms of the meaning of death and and, and things like that what, what how has that changed you know as you've been on the job Stumped in my interview question. My stumped interview question came in. I can't say anyone's ever gone down that road before about my my beliefs when it comes to mortality. Um, uh, You know, and I suppose, remember, you start on, or I started on this job. I was not even 22 years old yet. Uh, So with a very, very narrow vision of, of life and the world, and after well, 31 years now, including uh, coming up on 16 years in homicide, I think it certainly expands your scope uh, about death and, and dealing with death. Um, but I don't know that it really changes your emotions when it comes to death on a personal level. Because it's still uh, personal. Right? It, it, it's still personal, you know. And I've, I've, you know, I lost my parents in the in the last five years, and I've lost a couple of friends in the last just in this calendar year, and it's still emotional, and, and it's still tough to deal with uh, when you're dealing with death at a homicide scene yeah. where you don't know that person uh, yet, although you do get to know them through your investigation and their family as well. Yeah. And and sometimes you can develop those very strange bonds with that victim, even though you've never met them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you just get to know them so well through your investigation. But at the outset, it's, it's, it's a different animal, uh, to deal with than a a personal attachment to someone who's died. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's how you stay sane too, right? You know, leave, this is, I mean, t- to put it quite bluntly, this is work death and this is personal, you know, right. you know, things that I have to deal with just because it's life. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I can absolutely, that makes a lot of sense, you know, from how I see things. That's very great to know. And, and you know, in terms of the community around you and just to like kind of move off um, the topic, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have are empathetic about these victims too, as we watch it on TV. How is the community actually has it aided in the investigation process and, you know, in terms of what you look for, for any more evidence or any leads or things like that, like in terms of the community providing you any help? Some of the, uh, the biggest factors in the success of the outcome of a homicide investigation is the help from the community. Um, and what you get, we, we, I've, I've said it time and time again that we can't do this alone. Uh, 
yeah. right? And uh, putting together a good homicide case and a good homicide investigation is like putting together a massive jigsaw puzzle. Sure. And everyone's got that little piece. And somebody might have 99% of those pieces and then just a little bit has to be filled in. But so we, we need those pieces. Um, and overall, uh, uh, and I've said it, I've said it already, I, I think this, the city of Toronto is a great city where people don't want to see uh, death on the streets and, and an increased homicide rate. And, uh, you know, uh, these bullets flying the way they've been flying over the last couple of years. So we get an awful lot of help uh, from the community, a lot of it unsung. Um, but there's a lot going on in the background and, and a lot of people willing to step up and, and help out any way they can. And on the other side of that, too, I would imagine, uh, especially in the MacArthur case, I think the, the level of fear builds up in the community. And sometimes um, that fear comes back to you guys in a negative fashion, wanting uh, results faster. And so how do you what's that fine line in that buffer between you know, keeping everyone calm and at bay, getting help from them, and kind of playing in the middle and, and, and that balancing act. Yeah, uh, well, you know, you, you have to balance that uh, preserving the integrity of, of that investigation with, um, you know, pu- public safety, though, trumps that every single time. Um, so you want to get as much out as you possibly can get out, but you also... Remember with MacArthur, uh, a, a lot of people were saying, we knew there was a serial killer and we told you yeah. there was a serial killer. And um, we had those same discussions in the, in the project room. Maybe there's a serial killer. Could there be a serial killer? Yeah, you can't put that out there, yeah. right? Because what if it isn't a serial killer, exactly. right? Yeah. And um, the fear level goes up and... Yeah, the fear level goes up, and um, you know the the best we could do at at certain points in time. And I always go back to June of two thousand and thirteen, where we had these these three missing men, and we didn't know what had happened to them. And we put that out there and um, and asked for some help, and we got a lot of good information, a lot of good tips that came came in over the ensuing year. Um, and at the end of the day. Uh, MacArthur was a, a conniving, uh, a sadistic killer who yeah. disposed of his bodies uh, rather effectively yeah. uh, to the point and was very careful in choosing his victims. Um, and when a little bit of heat was on him, he chose his victims even more carefully. Right? So yeah. uh, we're not magicians and we can't... Uh, just manufacture evidence or or anything like that and uh at the end of the day i'm, I'm just glad that we we got them yeah right. and i think we i think we are too and i think we're very glad you know the amount of work and time you put not just you but your family you know to keeping you uh you know sane and and, and doing your thing and, and you know having that support and as well as toronto police um you know on your yeah. back too so you and, and your take, team you fantastic know, job and great. um Thank you. Great team. So thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to say to the community, to, you know, your fellow colleagues um, before we wrap up the show? Uh, really, as a, to my colleagues and, and, to, and to the community, um, you know, although 
MacArthur was a big case, and I'm the face that everybody seems to know, uh, recognize and, and associate with MacArthur. There was uh, an awful lot of uh, police officers and, and civilian employees of the service doing a, a, an awful lot of work behind those scenes um, that never got recognized, and, and to them, uh, we owe them a, a great deal of thanks for the amount of work they do, and that's true in every homicide investigation where you might see one detective sergeant in front of the, the news cameras talking about it, but there's a whole team behind him and doing a, him or her doing an awful lot of work yeah. behind the scenes. So, Amazing. Thank you very much, Thank Hank, you so for joining much. us. Thank you, guys. 24 Shades of Blue, everybody. We're out.